Okay, okay, enough, enough. I submit, I submit. I tap already, I tap. Oh. You tapped? This keg hasn't even got a spout put into it. Not that kind of tap. I, I submit. I, I, I give up. I quit. I am done with this cartoon. <laughs> yeah. This is, oof. This is one of Deke's worst. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. And joining us on the couch today... Impact Pro Wrestling ring announcer, Legends of Wrestling card game developer, co-host of the Uncharted Territory podcast, and most famous person ever to guest on this podcast, Chad Olson. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Um, I am kind of concerned that I am the most famous person ever to be on your podcast because it just means you probably haven't had any guests before. We've had guests. They've just been personal friends. Oh, okay. Well, then I am I'm honored to be here, although um, I do, after watching the episodes of the cartoon, feel a little bit abused and that you maybe secretly had something, you know, against me. No, we just knew we needed backup. <laughs> I think we all need backup after this, uh, this episode. It could have been worse. We could have had you watch the Lassie cartoon. Oh, that's true. That's true. As you probably gathered, today we are talking about Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling, a disaster piece by the animation company Deke that ran on CBS in 1985 and 1986 seasons. And wrestling is something that we've crossed paths with a couple times. You know, we've seen it on the Angry Beavers episode. We've seen it on the Captain Caveman episode, but... This is the first time diving into a show where the theme is the scripted sport. And you'll notice I say scripted. Res- I will never, ever say the F word in regards to wrestling. No. I, I prefer the word predetermined. That works. Uh, that that does indeed work. Even though we don't see them ever actually wrestle in this cartoon, despite being wrestlers. Mm-hmm. So let's uh, set the stage here for a bit. 1985 was a watershed year for the World Wrestling Federation, the parent company and promotion this cartoon centers on. See, that March, the very first WrestleMania was held at Madison Square Garden and broadcast on uh, closed-circuit television and other arenas. I don't know for a fact if it was actually on pay-per-view or not yet. It it was not. Pay-per-view for wrestling didn't exist yet. The first wrestling pay-per-view was actually... On the fall of 1985 with the Wrestling Classic Tournament out of Chicago. Okay. Nice. But that year, the names Hulk Hogan, Roddy Piper, Junkyard Dog, The Iron Sheik, and Wendy Richter, among many others, were reaching the pop culture zeitgeist. Vince McMahon's ambitions of turning his company into the be-all, end-all, of-all for pro wrestling felt more real than ever. WWF toys were appearing in department stores and toy shops around the country. Cindy Lauper was using Vince's personalities in her music videos and appearing at WrestleMania. 
And that fall, the superstars of his promotion would be appearing in the cartoon we're discussing today, which I find a little unusual in and of itself, since NBC was the network running Saturday night's main event. Yeah, it was weird to see this show on CBS, like you said, Gene, because of the the connection to NBC. And I um, remember, and I I believe I'm a little older than you guys because I have listened to other episodes, and based on you guys saying you've watched some of these uh, shows on Cartoon Express, whereas I watched them live when I was a kid, I remember how on, on the Friday night before the new cartoon lineup would start every fall, the different networks would have their their preview events and Roddy Piper hosted the preview event for the CBS um, cartoons, the morning or the, the year that uh, this show started. I, I vividly remember Piper being on TV on CBS and I thought it was weird too, with the whole connection with NBC, but I don't know. Must have had a different contract. And they somehow got Patty LaBelle for that. Yeah. <laughs> now, she would have been maybe a, a little more smooth with the, the whole show. I was just going to say, I also find it odd that despite this being based on those wrestlers, those wrestlers don't voice themselves. Yeah, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But before we do, there's no dancing around this subject. Professional wrestling is not always a pretty business. Every wrestling company of note has had and still have skeletons in their closets, barring possibly uh, Mr. Olson's. We are skeleton skeletonless. Wrestling was and is a tough lifestyle, and especially during the 80s and before. And scandal almost always seemed to be around the corner, even if it was hidden from view the majority of the time because the quote-unquote mainstream of culture and media perceived it as beneath them. This, however, is not a wrestling podcast. Something I had to keep reminding myself of that fact as I prepared this specific episode. So while I could certainly go at length about Roddy Piper's dog collar match against Greg Valentine at the first Starrcade event ran by Jim Crockett Promotions and the National Wrestling Alliance a couple years before WrestleMania, that's not what this podcast is meant to do. We talked about cartoons. <laughs> so yeah, we're going to try and keep this within the confines of the cartoon in question, especially since wrestling is almost incidental to the proceedings on the show to begin with. I think I've only seen one thing happen in a wrestling ring in this cartoon, and it certainly wasn't in front of a crowd. You could actually suggest this almost foreshadowed a lot of Vince McMahon's unusual habits, tastes, and verbiage in the future. Yeah, the show definitely centered around the wrestlers, you know, kind of having wacky hijinks out of the ring. Um, and, And sometimes it was hard to connect why they were doing what they were doing. But, I mean, you know, I was... You know, what, 12, 13 when this came out? It it was fun just to see wrestling, just more about wrestling because I was so into it at the time. This show came out about two years into my fandom um, when I really got into wrestling and and started watching uh, religiously, much to the consternation of my parents. Mm. My dad was all into wrestling, so he was more than willing to encourage me on that. But uh, I I got asked once a long time ago what the show was like, and I think I described it as, well... You've seen wrestling, right? Imagine if wrestlers were their personalities 24-7 in just ordinary life. And that's kind of how this cartoon is. Like, imagine if Hulk Hogan was really acting like Hulk Hogan, even when he was at the grocery store. That, that's a good way to sum things up, Pemmy. Because um, the one thing I had forgotten about were the wrestlers' vehicles. <laughs> and I really laughed, um, you know, watching in one of the episodes we're going to talk about, um, 
Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik, who were portrayed as, you know, in the ring as just the two most evil guys ever. They were the whole evil foreigner. And them driving around in the Sheik's car, which had its own, you know, kind of Iranian headdress thing. <laughs> and it really implied that Nikolai Volkov was, in fact, a terrible driver, um, based on what you saw from the episodes. And, of course... This is, again, in keeping with Vince McMahon's overall vision. Least we forget, this is the guy in the early 80s on Tuesday Night Titans managed to convince Ivan Putsky, a serious, tenured, old-school pro wrestler, to go and claim that Polish sausages grow on trees at a mock Polish sausage festival. (laughs) Yeah, some of the intros to the cartoons um, reminded me very much of a skit from, like, TNT. Uh, some of the, some of the cut-ins that they had, um, and I don't remember if the the episodes we watched specifically had those. But as I looked at some of the other episodes, it very much reminded me of, of some of those skits from TNT. Right. Still, the differentiation between babyface wrestlers or the good guys in plain speak, and heel wrestlers, aka the bad guys, is maintained on the show with two separate factions of characters at odds over well, just about anything you got. The good guys, led by the Hulkster include Andre the Giant, Junkyard Dog, Wendy Richter, Tito Santana, Superfly Jimmy Snuka, Hillbilly Jim, and manager Captain Lou Albano. While the villains, ostensibly led by Rowdy Roddy Piper, include Big John Studd, The Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov, Fabulous Moolah, and manager Mr. Fuji. We'd also see Mean Gene Oakland and Bobby the Brain Heenan from time to time on the show, and they do make it into... The episodes we talk about here so we get to talk about nearly everybody in this cartoon yeah even though some of them like uh hillbilly jim just appears for a brief second in one of the episodes and says one line but, yeah. yeah and i don't think snooka says anything but uh he's definitely there <laughs> yeah he's it was weird how in um one of the episodes snooka is just really in the background but then depending on the shot he's there and then he's not there you know um i kind of say the same thing for like you said hillbilly jim mm-hmm and Tito Santana. The bad guys were really more consistent um, in appearing in the episodes and actually having some dialogue. They're probably more fun to write, to be honest. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Now, regarding the cast, I do want to get into the weeds and dig into wrestling history because it does impact the production of this cartoon where the cast is concerned. You see, the fabulous Moolah was not supposed to be the token female villain here. That honor was originally meant to go to a protege of hers, the Mohawk six foot two inch grappler Mad Maxine, someone who, in this day of female powerhouses like Bianca Belair and Rhea Ripley, could have uh, thrived in women's wrestling today. Ah, uh, Rhea Ripley, heart. <laughs> yeah, I had to throw that in there for you, Pam. I know you're uh, crushing on her. I uh, I very much appreciate that. Now, Mula was a great many negative things, some disputed, some not, the majority of which we're not going to get into. But one of those things was overly protective of her spot at the top of women's wrestling. And she quickly saw Maxine as a threat to her position with the WWF. So not only did Moolah basically cut Maxine's run there at the knees, she played politics to get Maxine's spot on the cartoon. Wow. A quick Google search, though, will turn up the original concept art with Maxine among the show's roster of characters. Aw, oh, dang, I wish they kept her. She looks kind of cool. Even in that small image, I'm like, oh, dude, she looks cool. Again, she'd be thriving today. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's not like another wrestler that's on this show isn't known for politicking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> isn't that right, Mr. Hogan? <laughs> now, on the other end of the production side, we have the animation company Deke. They produced this cartoon and with the WWF, now WWE, of course, and they weren't exactly the newest kid on the block at this time. But the recently launched U.S. arm was making big waves with projects like Inspector Gadget, The Littles, and Heathcliff and the Cadillac Cats already in their growing repertoire. This American branch, set up by former Hanna-Barbera writer Andy Hayward, was initially a means of getting Deke's works made for their initial home market, France, translated into English, like uh, The Lost Cities of Gold? Is that the right name, Pemmy? Mysterious Cities of Gold, but yeah. Thank you. Which is actually a really cool cartoon, I'm just throwing that out there. Also, uh, Ulysses 31. But the success of those aforementioned shows and others made them profitable in a hurry. Now, Deke, spelled D-I-C, also had the notoriety of standing for Do It Cheaply amongst those in the animation industry, which, while not flattering, and certainly not alone in that reputation, <coughs> filmation, <coughs> wasn't entirely unfounded. It is worth mentioning that as bad as Filmation stuff still looked in the 80s, they were actually upping their game at this point and trying to look better than at least their 70s output. Um, no kidding. Also, despite Deke doing stuff cheaply, a lot they did have a lot of shows that looked good because the studios they had outsourced to would be places like uh, TMS in Japan that actually did amazing overseas work. Case in point, Inspector Gadget. This was not one of those shows. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think a majority of this was handled by Taiwanese studio Wang, and they're not very well known for being high production. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about Mula and her inclusion, I look when I first saw the cartoon, I forgot Mula was in it. So when, as I was watching these this week, I kind of it triggered some memories. I looked at her, I'm like, going, I wonder if they used Ruth Buzzy as her inspiration, because I just, I saw her, and I instantly thought of Ruth Buzzy, the actress, and thought, she's not voicing Mula too, is she? But, but uh, speaking of voices, as Pemmy alluded to, while the wrestling personalities involved appeared in live-action segments on the show, their touring schedule meant that with 1985 technology, getting them to perform their animated alter egos was a no-go. This meant we wound up with a gaggle of different voice actors, many of them fresher faces to the business compared to the veterans like Don Messick, Frank Welker, and Janet Waldo, who were all over the place in the 60s and 70s, and of course into the 80s too. Now, some of these performers did excellent jobs. I want to single out Captain Lou's voice actor George DeCenzo for capturing the over-the-top nature of this rambling nut. I, I just love the fact that Captain Lou is voiced by Hordak from She-Ra. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just in the finest condition of my life. I'm 300 pounds of speed and Johnny Dynamite go behind intestinal fortitude. I gotta hand it to Bobby the Brain. He knows a tasty ride when he sees one. And even better, yeah. James Avery, who would go on to greater fame as Shredder in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and in live action as Philip Banks on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uncle Phil! <laughs> he does a respectable job capturing the rasp of Junkyard Dog's speaking voice. He can't come to the ring like a cabbage. All head and no rear. He'll have to bring a little to get some, and it's going to be a whole lot on this whole cotton to be gotten. I don't 
don't know about you, but I'm gonna do some get down boogie woogie with the zombies. Yeah, definitely some of the guys I thought growing up were actually the wrestlers because they did sound like them, and some of them not at all. Um, but now as, I, as, as I've looked at the list over the last couple of days, like, no, nope, none of them were involved. And like you said, it makes yeah, sense. I want to give props to Neil Ross. I think he did a really good Mean Gene Oakland imitation. Now, the most famous name attached to a voice besides Avery would be Brad Garrett, a character actor famous for his role on Everybody Loves Raymond and multiple voices for some of Disney and Pixar's most loved films. I, I know him best as uh, Lobo in the uh, Superman animated cartoon. That too. He gets the plum role of titled character Hulk Hogan. And while he isn't as blustery as the real Hulkster, it's still a decent job. Even if he is just being Brad Garrett. <laughs> uh, it's, the, it's the right pitch, at least. It, it works. And what you gonna do when Hulkamania and the largest arms in the world run wild on you? Thanks for making my ride number one, folks. All right, dudes and dudettes, who's your favorite Hulkamaniac? Uh, he was also Trypticon on uh, Transformers. I'm just mentioning that since we did Transformers recently. Mm-hmm. Now, some of the other performers, however, missed the mark. And I have to mention Charles Adler, who's one of the <laughs> best-known veterans of the industry today and famous for roles ranging from Buster Bunny on Tiny Toon Adventures to Cow and Chicken to multitudes of others and even some directing. I, I just want to throw in my favorite of his roles was Mechanicles on uh, Aladdin. Where it just felt like his the character was just so neurotic, it just felt like he shoved every voice he can do into one character. <laughs> but he, here he was cast as the demented and unhinged Rowdy Roddy Piper. And I don't know if he's just miscast or being misdirected, because Adler's performance is just another sneering cartoon villain. No, 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 no. It didn't take me two months to make up my mind, brother. No, no, no. I said, you want me to fight somebody? I'll fight anybody. Who do you want? Just let me fight him. Once we pull the pin on Junkyard's Junkie Ride, all of his customers will head straight for my hot air balloon ride. Oh, it's so hilariously not Rowdy Roddy, though, that every time I... Every time I've watched this and Rowdy Roddy appears and I hear Adler's voice for him, I just start laughing because it's so not Piper. (laughs) Similarly, Ron Gans's deep voice was perfect for, say, Juggernaut on the Pride of the X-Men TV pilot. But for Nikolai Volkov, it's honestly too deep. And as much a stereotype as you can get, but then again, this is 80s wrestling characters. Yeah. Andrew John is nothing but mother freak. He's a freak of mother nature. Oh, he should be in a circus, not a wrestling business. Pauline. He have no coordination. He have no reflex. He have no speed. Reach for the sky, comrade Sheik. <laughs> yeah, he definitely sounded, um, um, made uh, Nikolai sound a little too menacing almost. And falling somewhere in the middle is Pat Fraley, known for his work on G.I. Joe and as Krang on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He's also a Brave Star in Brave Star. Yep. Uh, and ironically, he was Marshall Brave Star isn't the only time he was a Marshall because he was also Marshall Moo Montana in uh, the Wild West Cowboys of Moo Mesa. But his take on Hillbilly Jim is goofier than the real performer. But then the character was kind of silly in the first place. Yeah. I love it when everybody talks about me. Look here. And little kids come up to me and give me these handkerchiefs like this. Oh, they give them to me right like they're looking there. Oh, look at yonder. <laughs> hey, 
Hey, fellas, there's a smiling log bonus. And of course, this isn't getting into the extended hillbilly family. Yeah, the, the hillbillies have been a long uh, time wrestling trope. So about this time you had Hillbilly Jim, Uncle Elmer, Cousin Junior, and Cousin Luke. Um, Not to be confused with yeah, Luke Miller of the Bushwhackers. Correct, correct. Or Sheep Herders, depending uh, on your preferred era. I, I'm definitely Team Sheep Herders. Yeah, so's Luke. <laughs> and what about the guy who uh, voiced uh, Iron Sheik and uh, Bobby the Brain Heaton? Well, that would, in fact, be Mr. Aaron Kincaid, who we last heard as Skylinks of the Transformers. The fantastic and fabulous Skylinks. Again, it's just so weird seeing this Loch Ness Monster-style robot speaking so erudite. I regret that I didn't get to say my favorite Skylinks line in our Transformers episode, which is there's an episode where he literally goes... If you can't think of what to do, just think what would Skylinks do in this situation, and you won't go far wrong. <laughs> and there's a mark on the tangent board. That's for Chrissy. But uh, what is your opinion on his uh, voices for uh, Iron Sheik and uh, Bobby the Brain Heenan? Well, we will get into his Heenan later on in the episode, but for the Sheik, that's decent. Re- reasonable. Yeah, he didn't sound bad. He didn't sound like the Iron Sheik because he was more um, you could understand what he was saying. <laughs> I've met the Iron Sheik in real life and he's a little bit difficult to understand. I love his Twitter though. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. That's yeah. I think we all dodged a bullet when B. Brian Blair wasn't added into the cartoon. <laughs> that would have been awkward. So the head developer and writer for this program was Jeffrey Scott who also wrote both episodes we're looking at today. And Jeffrey Scott's credits are pretty extensive. We've actually seen some cartoons he's written for, though I don't think we did episodes he did. But, you know, things like Captain Caveman and the Teen Angels and Dungeons and Dragons. And sure enough, Thunder of the Barbarian were all cartoons he had some hand in. And right around this time, he was also developing Muppet Babies. Gee, I wonder which show got the lion's share of his attention. <laughs> it definitely wasn't this. <laughs> Yeah, I know uh, Mr. Scott best as uh, the guy who developed, uh, cha- uh, was head writer or developed uh, Challenge of the Super Friends. Uh, he developed a Pac-Man cartoon, and he developed Captain N, which may or may not be the best resume, depending on your opinions on those shows. So, let's ring the bell and get in with our first cartoon, Ballet Buffoons. My motive for picking this half episode, this was an 11-minute segment which shared with a a Battle of the Bands episode, I picked it because I was trying to find some, nay, any competence in this cartoon. So I picked out what I thought would be a low bar to clear. The bumbling comedic duo is one of the oldest comedy tropes in the book. From Laurel and Hardy to Lenny and Squiggy and animated examples like Tex Avery's George and Jr. It's a well-worn, basic thing. The Rock and Wrestling creative team decided this would be the template for scenes involving the foreign heel tag team, Nikolai Volkov and the Iron Sheik. Surely the creative team can get something decent out of this old formula, right? Right? Well, and like I had mentioned earlier, it's it was so weird they did this with Sheik and Volkov because they were portrayed as such evil guys and, you know, could any of the American teams beat them? And here they are. They're just this goofy comedy duo. 
it was such a um, you know role reversal of their characters in the ring. Granted, Nikolai wasn't always portrayed as the brightest. Think back to his appearance in the very first Royal Rumble that Hacksaw Jim Duggan won, where he comes out early. Yeah, yeah. Later in their career, they they kind of did turn him, you know, a, a little more comedic, a little more bumbling. But at the time this cartoon was coming out, you know, 85, 86, they were still, you know, one of the top teams. And, uh, you know, she could just been world champion, uh, dropping it to Hulk Hogan. And she can Volkov have beaten um, Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo at the first WrestleMania for the tag team titles. So they were they were pretty high on, on their um, on their position on the card. Um, but as you said, later, they kind of worked their way down. And, and certainly Sheik has become a, a bit of a uh, a comedy uh, f- figure now, you know, with uh, Twitter, with his um, colorful, with Twitter, with his colorful, uh, yes, his colorful takes on life, <laughs> and especially Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yes. So we open with Nikolai clumsily driving the Sheikmobile into a back alley, as Sheiky Baby angrily asks, "Who taught him how to drive?" We get the answer, Sheik himself, right as the Sheik tumbles out of the crashed car. Timing on these two gags feels a little off, personally. Well, eh. I, I I won't repeat what I said about Wang Studios earlier. So, <laughs> and I, I have a feeling Deke didn't want to pay for retakes either. Mm. So Nikolai exposits that his sister Natasha has arrived stateside for a ballet performance, but as they get in, Nikolai realizes he didn't get any flowers for her. The conniving Iron Sheik just casually swipes some off the hat of a dancer spinning by. And when Volkov asks where they'll get water, Sheik just stuffs them under Volkov's hat and calls him Water Brain. Is that even an insult? I, I mean, the human body's mostly water, right? I-, I can't say I've ever heard someone be called a Water Brain before. Maybe it's, uh, you know, more of a... Um, one that Sheik would use, you know, with his culture or something. Maybe it's more topical there with Iran. It's not like I haven't heard stranger insults coming out of pro wrestling. Pot-bellied sharecroppers, anyone? (laughs) It's no pencil neck geek, that's for sure. But what is? Well, it might be better than having Roman Reigns say suffering succotash. Now, the other shoe drops on the plot as the heels discover Natasha's wheelchair bound because she broke her leg. Nikolai says she should have done a safer activity like wrestling. Um... Uh, but without her, the show might be canceled and the company will lose face. Nikolai approaches her on his knees to comfort her and offers to personally find a replacement as we hear the classic tiptoe xylophone sound gag, which is so out of time with his movement, it really feels out of place. And to make it sound in time, could you imagine how fast his knees would have to be going? And get some rug burns at that rate. So scanning the yellow pages... Wow, I never imagined a phone book would be what makes a cartoon feel dated. <laughs> or the fact he's using literally a payphone at that. So Nikolai finds a ballet school and his broad shoulders are too wide to get him out of the phone booth. So he simply hops about, still stuck in it, as the Sheik can't believe what he's seeing. Well, hopefully Superman doesn't need that phone booth anytime soon. To be honest, at this point, I couldn't believe what I was seeing either. <laughs> hey, that's a thought now that there's no phone boost anymore does like what does superman transform change into now he changes into a pervert a, <laughs> that is a great point i hadn't thought about that i kind of haven't read comic books in quite a few years but yeah i wonder where he does change anyways 
So once they get to the school, they find it's a school for kids. While the little one has talent, she's not what they need. Volkov admits his mistake as we get more he's dumb and can't drive jokes. Yep. He completely takes out a hydrant and is like, I think we've strung a leak, uh, Comrade Sheik. He says that so frequently, Comrade Sheik, you'd think it was a punctuation mark. (laughs) So Nikolai hasn't got the heart to tell his sister he's failed to find a replacement, and he has to interrupt the Sheik's explanation to say they found a great ballerina. Sheik flails his arms behind his bulky tag team partner in protest, and once they're back on the road, he admonishes Nikolai, who in his explanation takes his hands off the wheel, and they drive up one of those trucks that deliver automobiles. This all happens too fast to really let the gag land. Which is a pity, because that could have actually been a funny gag. (laughs) Even a stop clock is right twice a day. So, plan B. Draft the only woman they seem to know, the fabulous Moolah, into doing it. Moolah, as well as Wendy Richter, and probably the majority of the female voices in this show, are performed by Jody Carlyle, who is best known as Marianne Thornbury on the Nicktoon The Wild Thornberries. Nice, I actually did not know that one. Yeah, pretty nice when you get to rub elbows with the likes of Tim Curry on a cartoon. I I swear that's like one of Tim Curry's funniest roles. (laughs) Smashing! So, with a tutu over her usual outfit, Nikolai puts Moolah through her paces with disastrous results. And she comes off the ropes and misses! And it's the only time we see a wrestling ring in any of these two episodes, and it's for ballet. And those ropes must have been very loose for her to get that amount of spring off them when she hit them. Well, what is it Jim Ross always says? This ain't ballet, folks. <laughs> You've, of course, met Jim Ross a few times, Chad. I have. I have. Yes, he's a regular attendee at the Tragostas Hall of Fame, which is another wrestling event that I, I'm involved with. We have our Hall of Fame inductions every July in Waterloo, Iowa. It's uh, connected to the Dan Gable Wrestling Museum. So we got to, I'm going to put a little plug in, check it out. Uh, look for us on Facebook, Tragos Thez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame. You can see what we have lined up. And what date will but that be? This year's event will be July 20th through 22nd in Waterloo, Iowa. Yeah, check us out. We have uh, a lot of great inductees. More are going to be announced in the, the upcoming weeks. So I, I can't... Uh, Give too much away right now, because to be honest, I don't want to mention anyone who hasn't been officially announced yet and get in trouble. Okay, you can edit this part out, but I believe <laughs> Boris Malenko has been announced? He is. Yeah, so we will be honoring our, with our first ever training award, Professor Boris Malenko, who, who trained, obviously, his sons, Joe and Dean Malenko, um, the one, two, three kid, um, or X-Pac. Um, and Dan Severn, and many others. So his son, uh, Joe Malenko, will be there to accept the award on his behalf. Very nice. Uh, the closest I got to that is I actually did go to the Jim Ross's uh, restaurant he had in uh, Norman, Oklahoma. So. Oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jim Ross's um, you know, barbecue sauces and beef jerkies that he's done. He's brought some of that stuff up there before. Uh, great stuff. And I believe you can still order, order all that through the mail if you want to check it out and help them out. So, showtime is approaching at the ballet, and Nikolai still can't bring himself to tell Natasha the truth. Try though he and the Sheik might. And again, he interrupts Comrade Sheik to say the ballerina's getting ready. And he insists there will be a replacement right as the curtain is almost about to go up. The ballet begins as a conductor stretches with old rusty hinge sound effects. Again sounding out of place. 
and the lead male performer is confused where his partner is supposed to be, and so are Natasha and Shiki Baby. Of course, the title card for the cartoon gives away what's about to happen, as Nikolai himself is the replacement, and on wires, he's as graceful as a three-toed sloth on roller skates. This is like one of those scenes that almost feels like cringe level of just... (laughs) Now, I thought that would be just the short and tall of it, but in pirouettes, mean Gene Okerlund... Hi, wrestling fans, it's mean, light on his toes, Gene, and I can't believe the fiasco Volkov is making out of this beautiful ballet. Yeah, it was a well-placed run-in by Mean Gene with this. <laughs> if I remember right, that was one of the ongoing gags in this show was Mean Gene would just appear randomly for mm-hmm. scenes. And again, I credit to Neil Ross, uh, who I know best as Shipwreck in G.I. Joe, for doing a Rather good Mean Gene imitation. Mm-hmm. Neil Ross's other turns include two separate cartoon versions of the Green Goblin, and he recently took over the role of the Whammy in the revival of the game show Press Your Luck. And he was also Clyde on the Pac-Man cartoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, Slag in Transformers, since we uh, did that recently. should mention That's that. right. That's right. Now, Gene can't believe the fiasco Volkov is making and promptly gets the hook to drag him off stage, despite clearly being a better dancer than Nikolai. I should have just got Mean Gene for the role. <laughs> so, so this must be where Vince got the idea to pair him with the gobbledygooker. Definitely his, his dancing ability was, was highlighted in this, and you know, then he shows up a few years later at Survivor Series with the gobbledygooker. <laughs> so the director insists the curtain is closed, and Volkov believes he saved the ballet, but Natasha's tears are all we need to see for her opinion. And the director berates Nikolai as the audience is applauding like crazy. And the curtains go up and down as they all have to keep awkwardly bowing in between beratement. <sighs> it seemed like the, the ballet director was your typical, you know, Soviet foreign menace that you might see from Brigitte Nielsen in Rocky Four or something, where she's, she's the brains and... and you know, very uh, cruel in her treatment of, of Drago. Same thing with this director and how he's treating Nikolai. Uh, also, multiple scenes with this director, due to animation, Goof actually had it to where his beard looked like it was off his face entirely. <laughs> so as you can probably tell from the description we've been giving, the execution of the premise as a whole for this episode is as clumsy as Nikolai's own dancing. But here's the worst part. This was from season two, meaning this is what was turned out when the team behind the show had experience with the property. Not to mention we didn't get an explanation. I mean, with all the with all the applause, did did he actually save it or, you know, what? Maybe they were plotting for Mean Gene. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just half the episode. We're not even going to look at the other half since we have much bigger fish to fry today. Though this did follow with a uh, a weird live-action segment with Mean Gene, Captain Lou Albano, and Tito Santana at a fake restaurant. At a quote-unquote restaurant. Which Mm -hmm. is just an empty set with a table. And a plant in the background. Yeah. The audio engineering on this is way below par. Santana is mic'd up so poorly, I can barely hear a word he's saying over the music. Yeah, all I know is Captain Lou Albano got 
all he asked for was a tuna fish sandwich, and it was a, ends up being a giant sandwich with a fake tuna entire fish in it. Ha ha ha! That segment was not their best work. No. <laughs> I hope they got paid at least decently for that. <laughs> In the words of Captain Lou, whoever wrote that has the brain of a dehydrated BB. You put it in a pigeon, the pigeon flies backwards. And of course we'd get to see Captain Lou in another Deke show many years later as Mario. Mm-hmm. We're going to pause for station identification. And of course our traditional preview of the next episode. And when we return, we have a full-length episode from Season 1. May God have mercy on us all. Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling will return after these messages. Hey, boo-boo. We got a podcast episode in this picnic basket. Originating as a supporting feature on the Huckleberry Hound Show, Yogi Bear became Hanna-Barbera's first major breakout character, eventually landing his own headlining series. In two weeks, join us as we look at the bears, look at the bears, look at the bears! And now back to Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. Okay, I have to say it here. It was very hard for me to not go into full, now wait just a minute, mode with this episode, Rock and Zombies, because the entirety of it takes place at at an amusement park. I actually worked at an amusement park for one summer, and I'm also, as befits an animation nerd, a bit of a fanatic for the Disney theme parks. So I know a lot about things like ride capacity and, you know, turnover rates and the stuff you need to manage one of these parks. So I could be looking at this whole episode, picking at so many nits, I could sell them at bulk. But you when won't. I got done watching this, I kind of thought, now what's worse, this episode involving the amusement park or Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park? <laughs> hmm. Well, the Kiss one has the benefit of having, uh, what's his name? Pammy, you're always doing impressions of him. Uh, uh, Paul End? Paul End, yes. Oh, that's true. Oh, well, you know, that's just a thing I can do. <laughs> Blast that Penelope pit stop. <laughs> Going into this episode, we uh, do have an amusement park, and we see Hogan, Richter, Junkyard Dog, and Andre pulling up to the uh, parking lot. And I'm not even half a minute into this particular one, and I'm shocked at how poor this episode looks and sounds. Oh, I was just want to say uh, something about the title card. I'm amazed Hulk Hogan signed off on him looking scared on the title card for this. It's <laughs> a fair point. The music comes to us courtesy of Casio, <laughs> namely a Casio keyboard. And the parking attendant's voice actor gives one of the flattest deliveries I've ever heard. That's funny. The gate must be broken. As he struggles with a malfunctioning gate. Which, uh, Andre the Giant ends up just completely destroying in an attempt to fix it. And oh look, Hillbilly Jim and Captain Lou are suddenly in the back seat of Hogan's car. Chad, I'm so, so, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like I said before, it, it just seemed like 
guys would kind of teleport in and out of there. You'd, you'd see Jimmy Snuka. Then all of a sudden you'd see, you know, Hillbilly Jim in the background, but you never really heard from them. I did kind of, I, I giggled a bit at the Andre the Giant gag where he, he ripped the gate out of the the ground because, you know, hey, that's Andre the Giant, right? He can do anything. <laughs> it's not my fault I'm the strongest. I don't even work out. Granted, my voice is too nasally to do a proper Andre. Needless to say, he ripped it out and the uh, ticket guy told them that they need to pay another $2 for that bulldozer. In referring to Andre the Giant. Thanks. So, I was I couldn't quite pick up what he was saying. Yeah. Uh, and not to mention the scene of him standing in front of the car makes him look like he's like huge, I might say. But So a- after paying, the good guys park and are followed in by the bad guys, who decide back into their opposite's cars will be a good time. Hogan's attempts at insulting them just leads to further demolition derby action and a slew of low-grade insults as wrestlers continue to pop in and out of existence. Hogan can't even try and defuse the matter without throwing a turkey insult. (laughs) Well, you know, it was early 80s. I guess turkey was still a popular insult. Yeah, but this was still years before the Survivor Series was even thought of. They can't all be water brains, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I I do like that Moolah came in on a motorcycle, though. So it turns out both factions were invited by Bobby Heenan to this park. And Wendy says there's only one way to find out what what the case is, and in they go. Now, is it just me, Chad, or is Wendy's accent thicker in this cartoon? Oh, definitely. She I I took it that she sounded almost like a damsel in distress anytime she spoke, you know. Yeah, something of her act I the voice actress for her is acting with this character just sounds really I don't know if I'd say flat but I mean it just sounded like yeah I'm just doing this <laughs> sounds like Rogue from the X-Men on a Quaalude <laughs> there you go <laughs> now inside the park the rides have the likenesses of the wrestlers plastered over them we've got the Iron Sheik's dune buggies over a desert because of course that's what it would be we have Captain Lou's fast food mountain a Roddy Piper tartan hot air balloon, and Tito Santana's mug at the center of a Ferris wheel, among others, we'll mention later. A Ferris wheel that every uh, cart on it's a sombrero, because of course it is. Yeah. I also liked the sombrero on the back of Tito's jacket, just to make sure you knew he was Tito Santana (laughs) with his coat on. I don't even think he ever wore that ring jacket of any sort to the ring I don't recall it anyway. Didn't he just usually come out with a t-shirt on? Um, or he'd have a like a very plain jacket, you know, um, kind of like a, oh gosh. Oh yeah, that's what he so. wore with, when he was with Strike Force. Yeah, yeah, like a Strike Force. He had the one for Strike Force. When he was the Matador, he had a more, you know, traditional costume. But at that point, he did not have uh, uh, any jacket that looked like that. Yeah, the less said about the Matador, the better. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I, I agree, the carts on the Ferris wheel being sombreros, I'm like, oh my, this is... Some of these things just wouldn't fly today. <laughs> Thankfully. Now the wrestlers get on stage as Bobby introduces them, and Rock and Land, his park. Now, Aaron Kincaid's peanut performance is a pretty decent impression. The scripting just lacks the edge of the real brain's wit and mockery. 
I wish she sicked King Kong Bundy on whatever ham and egg or approved this dialogue. <laughs> and I didn't think he looked that much like Bobby Heenan either. You know, I no, kind of looked more look. like a Southern plantation owner. So more like uh, Colonel Rob Parker. Yeah, something was definitely off. It must have been a bad picture of Heenan they had for a reference photo. So the brain announces whichever wrestler's ride gets the greatest attendance will get their name over the park. And this was the biggest potential. Now, wait just a minute, a moment. Because if Heenan is traditionally on the side of the villains, he's dramatically skewed this contest against old hot rod. Because how many people can get on a hot air balloon in the allotted time compared to just about any of the other rides? I mean, it definitely set itself up for some kind of ballot box stuffing premise behind the whole episode. But, you know, this is where things start to take a real dramatic turn. Mm-hmm. Well, considering, not for the better. Considering what, what Heenan will say later, I have a feeling that it didn't really matter who's ride one. So. so the heels are already having dissension in the ranks as Heenan officially opens the park. It takes Moolah and Mr. Fuji performed by a probably very ashamed Ernest Harada, who was directed to make him sound like even more of a stereotype than the WWF ever did. And that's saying something. Honorable Moolah. But it it takes the two of them to convince the the baddies to work together to make sure the baby faces lose the contest. Yeah, unusual, uh, you know, teamwork for the bad guys. Usually they're more cutthroat everyone for themselves. So meanwhile, the heroes board Captain Lou's ride, and Captain Lou himself observes Heenan's got good taste for tasty rides. And at one blush, the ride is apparently a fully built-to-scale dining car, complete with a full-stake dinner service. But in other scenes, it's a more traditional theme park train with a bunch of kids sitting around open cars. Yeah, even the steak isn't very consistent, because sometimes it looks like a normal steak, and sometimes it looks like Salisbury steak. I was going to say a pot roast. It it was a very strange-looking car and ride, as you said. I didn't get the layout of how that would work. Yeah. So the train ride path causes Lou's meal to slide into Hogan's court of the table, and the Hulkster just tells him, Losers eaters, as he keeps it. Wow. All-American good guy Hulk Hogan, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, not, I, I'm going to give you credit. That's that's actually a pretty decent imitation of Hogan's voice you just did. So, Or if, in this, anyway. So yeah. nice Brad Garrett imitation. Now, to be fair, Wendy's the same when both stakes slide into her quadrant. And the depiction of the train continues to be inconsistent from scene to scene. I, I do I do like Wendy's lines like, oh, I like this right. Knows how to treat a lady. <laughs> <laughs> so two no good hombres are looking to derail the train. And of course, it's Sheik and Volkoff in cowboy hats. Beats dressing up as Batman and Robin on Saturday night's main event, at least. And of course, we get a gag of Iron Sheik falling into a cactus where the cactus needles have to be removed by a crowbar. How deep were they in him? <laughs> Yeah, a cr- said crowbar was stuck in Volkov's gun holster. How do you even put a crowbar into a gun? You know what? Never mind. Yeah, the, my biggest issue with this cartoon, in case you couldn't tell, is it can't decide which side of cartoon logic it wants to be on. Looney Tunes style or more realistic style? 
you know, with wrestling, they want you to, to set, suspend disbelief, but um, there was just too much suspension of disbelief called for to, to make sense of this cartoon. You'd need more suspension than the suspenders budget for the red green show. <laughs> that one's for our Canadian listeners. So the dastardly duo get their act together just in time to derail the train, launching the good guys out of their seats which should also mean the kids in the more amusement park ride-appropriate cars have been launched out of the ride. And due to some iffy animation, the uh, train is on the rails, then off the rails, and then goes into uh, goes into the Iron Sheik's dune buggy, right? <laughs> and then yeah. somehow gets back on the rails and they get out. And in the meantime, in his resulting rage, Sheiky Baby is ready to make Nikolai humble with a pair of cacti. Ouch. Ouch, Ouch. Too soon indeed. <laughs> I, I still don't get how they how they got back to the the exit for the ride though. Neither do I. But the riders loved it. Me, I want to vomit. <laughs> you know, even no matter how bumpy it, it would be, if I got a free like steak on a ride, I'd be on that ride multiple times. Now we see Mula's attraction, as Fuji observes to her and Heenan that this one might be the big winner. Yeah, her ugly face is attracting customers like flies, Heenan quips. Now that sounds like the brain I know and love. Except you'd think he'd be directing that insult at Wendy and not Moolah. Well, you know, they gotta hate on... Well, the the, the villains do that in this. They kind of just hate on each other. I also noticed that Bobby the Brain Heenan seems to gain and lose weight a lot in this episode. Yeah, I agree. He he was. I don't know if he was cutting weight during the episode or what, but um, maybe trying to skinny down for when he challenged uh, for the the junior heavyweight title in the AWA. There, there's an old school reference for you. But with Moolah's ride is when I in particular thought she really does look like Ruth Buzzy on this. Uh, on this, I don't know if that's the inspiration or what, but it wasn't the best, most flattering uh, picture of Moolah or Ruth Buzzy. <laughs> true, very true. Now, as they inspect Moolah's haunted attraction, some kids run off from what they believe to be real zombies. Hogan, Wendy, and Lou arrive as a small mob surrounds Heenan, who's trying to pass the whole thing off as a prank. And one kid objects particularly vociferously, who Heenan ejects from the park, and Wendy decides she's going to investigate as she exits the park, demonstrating more brains than the three of us. <laughs> She had the bright idea to get out while it was still okay. Yeah. I imagine she ran out of there as fast as she did running out of Madison Square Garden after that spider lady fiasco. Exactly. I I just want to say that I think Wendy has the most 80s outfit of the entire cast of this show. Fair. That was was her typical attire was very, very 80s, very Cyndi Lauper inspired. I love the giant, like, sunglasses that she keeps on the top of her head. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Junkyard Dog and Tito Santana are boarding the former's dogfight ride, and Santana decides it's burritos away. That's the squishiest burrito I've ever seen. <laughs> <sighs> One of the greatest technical wrestlers of his era, reduced to bargain basement Speedy Gonzalez. Tito's voice actor is character actor Joey DePinto, Another actor who most likely doesn't look back very fondly on this. It's a paycheck. Yeah. Roddy Piper and Big John Studd are the saboteurs this time. And they can't help themselves but keep arguing. 
Now, Studd's voice actor is Chuck Lissini in his only credited film and TV role. And if I'm being honest, he sounds more like John Wayne than John Studd. I still can't get over Charlie Adler's freaking Roddy Roddy Pop uh, Roddy Roddy Piper voice because it's so hysterical. <laughs> also, I should mention Stud is barely taller than Piper here in the cartoon, while the real life counterparts had a good eight inch difference between them. It's a good thing I had my official Legends of Wrestling cards to double check, because both of these personalities are in the game. You can find at www.philsingergames.com That's a great plug. Thank you, James. We appreciate that. Um, yeah, the Legends of Wrestling card game has been out for uh, a little over 20 years. Started rooted out of the Champions of the Galaxy card and dice game by Phil Singer Games, which has been around since 1986. And um, we're very blessed to have um, over 200 real-life professional wrestlers that have signed on and agreed to participate in the game. So it's it's a great gaming system. And, you know, check it out. Go to philsingerdame.com. So Pemmy knows, in addition to Piper and Stud, some of the more prominent names involved with the game include Macho Man Randy Savage, oh, the Road yeah. Warriors, Rob Van Dam, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Kurt Angle, Mark Henry, Sergeant Slaughter, Andre the Giant, and, of course, most famously, George South. Wait, there you go. You yeah, we have a wide variety of main eventers, you know, down to maybe opening match guys. And we have a lot of historical wrestlers from, you know, the early 1900s, too, like uh, Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt involved. So if you like modern wrestling, you know, we have an indies line where uh, there's a lot of guys who are maybe just entering WWE or AEW, or we have a lot of historical figures to the Legends line. So, you know, it, and they're all compatible with each other. So you can have a match with Frank Gotch against Dan Housen. Now, personally, I don't know why you'd want to do that, but if that's what you want to do, you can do it. So uh, definitely check it out. I'm personally happy just to hear that my uh, favorite, my all-time favorite wrestler was in that list, which is Kurt Angle. So nice. It's true. It's, it's damn, damn true. true. <laughs> yep. Kurt Angle signed on just a couple of years ago as part of a set we used to promote the Tragostez Hall of Fame. So we have this kind of collaboration between the the two groups and he was he was so nice and so willing to help out and uh even autograph some cards for us that we later auctioned off and, and raised money for the hall of fame um so he, he was a super great guy i have nice. to say that second trago says hall of fame set is a great companion piece to the starter if you're thinking of ordering because not only do you get kurt you get bob backland gorilla monsoon thunderbolt patterson and yes roddy piper Nice. You can tell we're trying to stall for time and not talk about the cartoon. <laughs> Anyways, let's continue on the cartoon. Yeah. Piper can't help but call John Studd a dunce under his breath, but passes his off as needing to disable the ride at once when Studd catches him. And all it takes is one removed screw to cause the plane ride to not simply fall over, but cut JYD's plane completely from it. That sounds like something Bobby Heenan commissioned, all right. <laughs> yeah, I have some questions about, like, the uh, technical design of some of the stuff in this uh, amusement park. James, you had mentioned you had, you know, worked at an amusement park before, and I-, I saw a lot of these rides and thought of, like, some of the county fairs and, you know, maybe more um, ramshackle thrown-together rides that I've seen sometimes when Impact Pro Wrestling is, is running 
shows at county fairs or, you know, the county fairs of my youth. And I just thought the same thing. It's like one screw in this thing goes down. Not, not a, not a great design. Right. So Piper's gloating at his own ride as the dog and his plane come in for a landing right through Piper's balloon. Junkyard, to my astonishment, wants to ride again. And patrons follow him to Piper's astonishment and annoyance. <laughs> I mostly loved with Piper's ride how it, uh, the design of the air balloon, hot air balloon, matched the, the kilt, the pattern of his kilt. I thought that was a nice touch. Yep, agree. Though, how, how far would that hot air balloon even go? Well, if it's powered by Piper's hot air, as far as it wants. <laughs> Back at Moolah's attraction, another group of customers find the zombie, and we get recycled dialogue not within five seconds of the first time we hear it. Wow! So the zombie attacks a young girl who sounds scared, but looks angry. As they retreat into the commercial break. Post-break, Moolah can't convince a frightened mob that it's all pretend, and is convinced herself when it shambles out of the attraction and confronts her. More zombies emerge, and Heenan has to convince the heels to help him corral them back into the attraction by giving them 10% of the take. And seemingly one of the zombies ordered ice cream. (laughs) Made it instantly melt. Oh, you scream, I scream, we all scream when we're confronted with zombies. (laughs) Sheik commands Nikolai to to put one in a spine bender. But apparently this particular zombie is more agile than a trained athlete who can regularly jump over the ring ropes. That's a Yeah. That's a really mobile zombie, I I must say. I was trying to figure out, you know, with zombies kind of being all the rage the last few years if these were more like the World War Z zombies where they they moved. I think those were the fast moving zombies, yeah. the more traditional ones compared to the Romero zombies. Exactly. Meanwhile, Piper engages in some hypocritical humor, jumping into John Studd's arms, a la Scooby and Shaggy, and in their retreat, they're literally sacked by Heenan and Fuji. Zoinks. Back with Wendy Richter, she's been following this kid for a while, all the way back to his house. Yeah, this isn't suspect by today's standards. Not creepy at all. Especially given the way she's dressed. I didn't real like I must have I don't know I don't want to say dozed off for a minute but all of a sudden she's rolling up on his house I'm like when did this happen mm-hmm. so and and I thought it was kind of weird too but she all of a sudden knew his name and everything but it turns out uh, that the door is open not by the just by the kid but his mom grandma whatever rejected character from the Heathcliff cartoon. Yeah, It was hard to tell her age. Of course, this being pro wrestling, it's possible that... She's a stunt granny. (laughs) Now, she and the kid, who we learn is named Greg, know that Heenan built his park over their family cemetery that they've owned for generations, and that they had to sell to Heenan due to rising property taxes. And Wendy recruits little Greg to confront the brain with this information. You know, Gorilla Monsoon would have had this resolved in, like, two segments of of Wrestling Challenge. Or Primetime Wrestling, that's what I was looking for. I have something to admit that I'm kind of ashamed of. Mm -hmm. At this point, I googled, can you build on a former cemetery? Because I was, like, just looking for the logistics. Is this something that could really happen? And I'm not, you know, 
was not suspending disbelief, but I, I wanted to know if it was possible that Bobby Heenan could actually build over a cemetery. And it seems to depend by state. So some states will let you and some states won't. That's what it, that's what it looked like. It was, it was a very, uh, just a very high level overview. And then I'm like, well, what am I doing? And I got back to watching the cartoon. <laughs> Congratulations, Chad. You're one of us. <laughs> so back at the park, Heenan and company corral the zombies via the Sheik's dunes buggies. And Mula is yet again offended by the brain. And Bobby gets around to revealing who will be the park's sponsor right as more patrons are running for their lives, and John Studd's beard disappears and reappears before our very eyes. Without the beard, he looks more like Jake Roberts. Yeah, that was really weird when that happened. Well, kind of a pity Macho Man wasn't in this show, but I don't know. Maybe that's for the better from Randy Savage. So, it turns out Hogan is the winner, and before we all say... Of course he is. Heenan actually raises an excellent point. Hogan Fooey, I thought you were one of us. I am a greedy cheat. That's why I chose Hogan. He'll make me more money than any of you jerks. Now, folks, it took a while, but the show finally got something right. Of course Bobby Heenan would go for what would make him the most money. Yep. That's that's true, Bobby Heenan. Yeah, like I said, it, it, it doesn't. It sounds like it didn't matter who actually won, whose right actually was more popular. He's going to go with Hogan because Hogan's the most popular. Hogan just wants the spotlight, though, which is also art imitating life. If I ever saw it, <laughs> definitely. Hello, WrestleMania Four. Also, that belt Hogan's wearing, like, kind of just morphs is into being part of his like his outfit half the time. And the Hulkster encourages the fa- the patrons back into the park just as the zombies get free again. Don't. The good guys finally realize what's going on, and Junkyard Dog it resolves to do some get-down boogie-woogie with the zombies. Beg your pardon, dog? <laughs> I mean, if he's into that... <laughs> A dramatic good guy turn by the zombies. <laughs> oh, we have not even seen the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Now, two of the Brain Eaters board Snooka's volcano-themed roller coaster, because of course it's themed to a volcano, considering Snooka's of Polynesian descent. Fiji Islands, to be precise. Is there even a volcano on the Fiji Islands? Mm, maybe? I didn't take time to Google that. I was still looking up cemetery construction. <laughs> Future James will have to jump in with that. And Future James here, checking in real quick, as it turns out. The Fiji Islands do have a volcano, but they have been dormant since at least the mid-1600s. But if we thought the logic being defied on Captain Lou's ride was bad, whoo, brudda! Yeah, those carts just randomly decided to go the opposite direction for some reason. And we get still more hijinks as zombies get on other rides, like Nikolai Volkov's Russian teacups and the wrestlers continue to try and fail to capture them. The park is nearly destroyed by the time Wendy and Greg return. Also, the teacups straight up go off the ride, seemingly somehow done by the zombies, I guess, or just Heenan's crappy uh, construction, or or I'm playing the Simpsons arcade game again. At the family amusement (laughs) park I worked at, at the time, the teacups were a really basic construct that were 
timed to hook into these latches when they would go from one of the turntables to the other. So I could presume maybe they came loose from those latches. Uh, how about the uh, random dinosaur that comes to life when the zombies ride it? That I can't explain. <laughs> Zombie magic. Yeah. Which uh, It's all in your head. Which Andre tries to follow up with, but instead just ends up destroying the other dinosaur model or whatever it was. Yeah, didn't that deflate? Yeah. It, it didn't crumble. <laughs> so Poor zombies sludge. are riding a balloon. <laughs> Poor sludge indeed. But me, Grimlock, terrorize amusement park! Meanwhile, Wendy is grabbed by some of the zombies who drag her to Hogan's Eye of the Tiger Jungle River Ride. Now can the zombies withstand the wondrous, colossal, eighth wonder of the world, the backside of water? Oh, wait, wrong jungle ride. (laughs) That was for our dear friend Grant Pachoco. I I just think it feel bad that Wendy kind of just gets turned into damsel in distress for this scene. Yeah. Greg finds the wrestlers as Hogan is accosting Heenan, and it's theme song power-up time as Hogan's then-current theme plays as the gang springs back into action. I, I'm going to admit, I don't like giving many positive things to Hogan, considering knowing you know all his backstage politicking and everything, but I, I'll give credit where Chris deserved. That theme kind of does rock. And it does kind of amp you. And we finally get a line out of Hillbilly Jim, who's been missing in action since we saw him at the beginning of the episode. And he spots some smiling logs. Of course, they're crocs, but animatronic ones, as Lou points out, only the zombie inside is all too real. And our entire crew of good guy hero wrestlers all get scared and knock over their boat. What dignity. But hey, that doesn't matter because... Hippos? Random hippos. I mean, they're not out of place in a jungle ride, but suddenly they're there. And Hogan's just like, we ride hippos. And it's just like, what? But what? But what? Okay. Yeah, I'm too stupefied for this to become a full, now wait just a minute moment. I was, I just threw up my hands in defeat and said, okay, whatever. Okay. Just let's get this over with. And then Hogan saves Wendy via Tarzan imitation. Yeah, and only to land near another group of zombies emerging. And Wendy gives the gang the exposition, and in the process we see the single worst composed shot in the cartoon that Pemmy or I have ever seen in the history of this podcast. I can't get over this scene. It's Wendy's levitating. Junkyard Dog and Jimmy Snooker are like, three feet tall and tito uh, oh and tito yeah and like captain lou and like andre the giant are also like partially levitating the only one that looks like he's right possibly might be hogan <laughs> he's the only one that looks like he's standing on solid ground in this picture the whole thing looks more like a kid playing with color forms that is the most epic description of this scene because it was terrible yeah, overseas animators Wang did not give a crap, seemingly. And Deke didn't give enough crap to pay for a retake. So Hogan convinces the zombies to come with him to confront Heenan, because the Hulkster is just that pure and good, brother. Hulk Hogan could talk anyone into anything. That's why he stayed on top so long. That, that, that is the 80s. Heenan and the Heels are fighting off the zombies with carnival game water pistols. 
and we get another Nikolai and Sheik gag. When Hogan and the, and crew finally catch up, the weasel, <coughs> I mean Brain, won't close the park, and he retreats to go-kart versions of the cars from the show, with Hogan and zombies racing in pursuit. Was this what inspired the video game WWE Crash Zone? I doubt it. <laughs> I, I gotta ask, though, um, this is a cartoon trope that I see happen a lot that I never understand, which is the whole, we're being chased in an amusement park, let's get on the rides. It's like, how's that going to help you escape them? They can just go to the end of the ride. <laughs> yeah, we definitely saw this in the Lassie cartoon, but done worse there. Yeah, so many shows do this, and it never makes any sense. Maybe they're hoping that they'll, you know, go off the track like Captain Lou's train ride and just, you know, be flexible about where they can go. <laughs> the chase then leads to Tito's ride, and the zombies, I guess, overload it, causing it to derail? Or, you know, maybe it's more of just cheap uh, construction by Heenan. It could be both. I mean, the cheap construction combined with the zombies exceeding the weight limit... All six of them. Finally surrounded, Heenan submits, and the amusement park is made into a memorial park at long freaking last. And, and in one scene cut. Yeah. As the zombies go to rest in peace, everyone is happy except Piper, whose name adorns the cemetery. Ronnie Piper's rockin' rest in peace memorial park. I don't know, I would be proud of that. <laughs> I mean, something definitely unique, but I agree. They, they certainly seem to tear down the, the uh, amusement park and flip it back into a cemetery in, in record time. So none of us can believe that this mess was renewed for a second season, and yet it was. Yep. And by the time that season debuted, both Wendy Richter and Jimmy Snuka were no longer with the Fed, despite still appearing in the cartoon. Now, they were probably too far in production at that point to change it. So, And with Jimmy Snuka, he barely appeared, so... Right. This happens a lot with wrestling tie-in products, though. Lead time for development and production often means these things tend to look ever so slightly dated as wrestlers intended for use in the product leave the company, such as Bam Bam Bigelow appearing in the first NES WWF game in 1989, after he left the company just before the fall of 1988. Yeah, I definitely remember having that game on NES and probably thinking, being very disappointed. Bam Bam's not here. Yeah, that that was a terrible, terrible game. It was no NES Pro Wrestling, that's for sure. Yeah. This cartoon's greatest sin, however, may be the contribution to the fall of Kayfabe. The act of wrestlers and other personalities attached to the show maintaining said show, even off stage, To protect the business, wrestlers on opposing sides almost never traveled together, some would assume their over-the-top personas in front of neighbors, and on and on. I gotta admit, that has gotta be exhausting. Yeah, you could ask MJF about that. He seems to be devoting his entire life to bringing kayfabe back. Though I, I do have to admit, it is impressive when you see stuff like... Uh, Macho Man Randy Savage being interviewed by Arsenio Hall, and he's still like 100% in character the entire time. Or the Wild Samoans winding up getting Hogan arrested because they won't break character in front of the police. True story. Yep. But, you know, I've read it observed before, and it bears mentioning here. And, you know, Chad's been saying it this whole time, too. 
once you see the dastardly, cheating, menacing Iron Sheik in a toy commercial giving kids a thumbs up to sell thumb wrestling figures and being portrayed as a goofy, cut-rate Yosemite Sam, it becomes hard to take his persona in the ring at face value. Hey. Ah, <laughs> uh, this show shows a mess. I, I guess I, if there's anything positive I can say, and this doesn't go for all of them, but and it, it plus it, it doesn't help that the the animation the animators can't seem to keep them consistent very well. For the most part, the character designs do do a pretty good job of representing most of the wrestlers as cartoonish cartoonish exaggerations of themselves. I mean, I can definitely yeah. see Hogan and say, "Oh, that's Hogan," granted with a better yeah. hairline. But I bet Hogan himself insisted on that. <laughs> that was probably in his clause to participate, right? But I mean, I can look at most of these characters and, you know, identify them as who they are. So there's at least that. Although Moolah's jumpsuit with the giant dollar sign kind of reminds me of the Riddler. <laughs> <laughs> that that looks like something Uncle Scrooge would wear. <laughs> now, back to kayfabe. Most fans who weren't kids at the time knew that it was all an act in the first place but wanted to suspend the disbelief for their entertainment. Vince's idea of doing business and the effects of it and the ancillary projects and products that came in his wake basically changed wrestling forever, for better or worse, depending on who you ask. But most people you ask will tell you both. Yeah, you know, being on the cusp of pro wrestling like we are, you know, we're not, this is not anyone's full-time job, but um, running an independent promotion you still want to portray that it is real. What's happening is, you know, we're not going out there and saying, ha ha, you know, this, this is predetermined. Um, so if somebody's, you know, gets injured by an attack after a match and little, little kids come up and ask, and it's like, well, you know, they're, they're doing okay right now, but they're pretty sore, you know, because it, you're going to me, it's, it's no different than going to a play or going to a movie where you lose yourself for a couple hours and, and just kind of enter a different world. That's kind of how I see things with pro wrestling. Now, wrestling and animation would continue to intersect both in the States and elsewhere, especially Japan. And WWE certainly wasn't done working in the format, either. In 2014, they'd enter a partnership with Warner Animation for a quartet of direct-to-DVD movies crossing over their wrestlers with vintage Hanna-Barbera character families, namely Scooby-Doo, the Flintstones, and the Jetsons. Now, with more modern technology it was far easier for the actual personalities to do their own voices. So you'd actually have Mark Calloway, the Undertaker himself, as the Undertaker, opposite Frank Welker and Matthew Lillard as Scooby and Shaggy. So my kids had the Scooby-Doo meets WrestleMania DVD, and they would watch that incessantly in the car when we'd go on trips to, to visit grandparents or whatever. So I've, I've probably heard that a hundred times. I don't know if I've ever watched it from completely from beginning to end, but yeah, I mean, you have John Cena in there and I mean, it's, it's John Cena. You can definitely tell it's his voice. So it, it is, it is cool to see the marrying of the, of the products. And admittedly CM punk rock is a great <laughs> Flintstones naming pun. <laughs> I, I'm actually quite fond of Vince McMagna, Vince McMagma personally. I, I want to throw in that, uh, Mark Calloway, Undertaker, was actually in two different Scooby-Doo 
projects as well as the Flintstone project. So, but I also want to throw in that the plot for the Jetsons WWE crossover is absolutely insane. <laughs> do, you, do you know what the plot of that one is by the chance? No, I, I, I didn't realize they had that one. Uh, I'm intrigued. Yeah. Big show gets frozen and then in the future they defrost him and the big show finds out that wrestling is in the future is now just done by robots and goes on a rage and decides to take over the world and the Jetsons have to go back in time to get more WWE wrestlers to stop the big show. Including the Usos, I think. Oh my I just Googled it and I see the cover. That is amazing. <laughs> WWE also tried to hone in on the robot chicken style of stop-motion animation that same year with Slam City, putting the superstars into regular job situations courtesy of an original character called The Finisher. Hmm. That must be one protected finisher. (laughs) That, oh my gosh, that show was terrible. (laughs) I'm sorry, but that was terrible. Wasn't there like a camp cartoon too? I was just getting to that. Camp WWE, animated by Seth Green's Stupid Buddy Studios. This was a more adult-oriented attempt at animating 2016-era wrestling personalities like Seth Rollins, Bray Wyatt, the Bella Twins, and Becky Lynch, but reimagining their personas as children at a summer camp, ran by older WWE personalities, with the kid versions of wrestlers voiced by other uh, voice actors but the grown-up personalities like Vince McMahon, Sergeant Slaughter, and Ric Flair supplying their own voices. The less I think about a summer camp ran by Vince and Rick, the better off I am. Woo! I mean, not to mention they also had The Godfather and Jake Roberts on on, uh, staff, or Jake Roberts as himself, a mountain man who lives in the wilderness near Camp WWE. There's a lot of ways you can go with that one. And who drove the camp bus? None other than Lex Luger. Now, these shows and made-for-DVD movies are technically on the list, but they're very, very, very low on said list at the moment. Yeah. It'll be years before we cover that. If we return to wrestling, it'll probably be something like Mucha Lucha or uh, the Japanese series Kinikuman, which the muscle toy line was derived from. Mm-hmm. Or its uh, second-generation version, which did air in American television as Ultimate Muscle. So, Chad, we, we got one last chance for you to plug your pluggables. Well, yeah. First off, thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. I went back and listened to um, some of your prior episodes, and like I told you off air, loved the Thundar episode, enjoyed the Laugh Olympics. I do feel a little bit old because, you know, you guys I seem to have watched some of these in rerun while I was there live watching it. But, um, you know, regardless, uh, this is just a great look back at, at different cartoons that we grew up with or checked out later and um, had fond memories of. And then you kind of go back and experience them as an adult. And, well, maybe they weren't so great, but it's, it's kind of like wrestling. You know, I go back and watch some of the stuff I grew up with and you, you kind of forget how bad some of the, the ring work was sometime. And then it's more the interviews that, that caught you and made you become a fan. Um, But yeah, you can check out the Legends of Wrestling game at philsingergames.com. If you're interested in attending the George Tragos Luthez Professional Wrestling Hall of Fame, uh, look us up on Facebook. We have our event this July, excuse me, July 2023. And um, I am on the Uncharted 
Territory podcast. Uh, we do a weekly podcast talking about professional wrestling, mostly within the scope of the Phil Singer Games Project, uh, the Legends of Wrestling and Champions of the Galaxy. We do a historical look back once a month and, and just kind of go through the, the history of the game and its community. But we also talk about other uh, sports games too, Stratomatic Baseball. A couple of uh, my friends on there are big uh, fans of those products. We talk about other baseball games. We've talked about um, hockey games, and we just cover a variety of subjects. But the kind of the common glue that brings us together is professional wrestling. So you can look up Uncharted Territory podcast on you know Apple, Spotify, any any uh, different podcast platforms. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be on here. Thank you, Chad. We could we could not have done this without you, and we're better off having done it with you. Thank- I don't know if I'm better off having revisited this, but <laughs> that goes for all three of us. <laughs> Thanks for uh, stopping by, and it was nice meeting you. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, Penny. And instead of the usual outro of uh, we're off to restock the breakfast cereal, I'm going to instead channel my inner Tony Schiavone because we are desperately out of time! (laughs) (laughs) Good night, everyone, and thanks for listening. See ya! The Penny and James got a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.